This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. My name is Marshall Smith. I'm a lifelong horror enthusiast. And that enthusiasm has only grown richer and deeper as I've aged and dug further into the genre. This film was notable in that it took me back to a earlier time where I, for better or for worse, as you will hear, was able to, or was just fully engrossed in a film, spellbound by the by the story and the construction, and had a visceral, fearful experience entertain experience of being entertained. Yeah, this was a scary one, Marshall. It was. I'm Laura Patterson. Uh, Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and this film is a great example of horror's ability to tell a story about good and evil and it lays down the line for what is good and what is not and (laughs) this one was a heck of a lot of fun to pick apart because it was absolutely just a minefield of problems situated in a really fun and really scary movie i loved it and hated it at the same time we watched the conjuring james wan who is a modern master part of the splat pack director of Saw and Insidious and The Conjuring. And I don't know exactly how we found it or how we came up with this, Laura. But yes, so we watched The Conjuring. I asked Um, you for a recommendation of a scary movie. Okay. Well, at least I got that much, right? (laughs) Um, The Conjuring is a 2013 film written, and this is important this time, by Chad and Carrie Hayes. H-A-Y-E-S, directed by James Wan, as I said, and the synopsis from IMDb is paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren work to help a family terrorized by a dark presence in their farmhouse. Uh, A massive success. It went on to spark sequels and is now a universe, right? Because it has the Annabelle side stories. And before I forget, spoilers in this episode for The Conjuring. We try and avoid spoilers, particularly with horror. Sometimes if you, at least with horror, I mean, we never, I never like spoilers, but with horror, someone gives away the something about the film that can totally undermine any hope of having a, a scary viewing experience. This one, for sure, it's a very, at least for us, a very rare, true, truly scary horror film, modern. And so we really encourage you to watch it beforehand. And I totally spoil The Exorcist, Friedkin's classic, classic horror film, which you should also, if you haven't seen one, you should just see it. And two, absolutely should not let me spoil it. Even as much as we want you to listen to our podcast, I absolutely don't want you to to ruin your your potential viewing experience of The Exorcist if you haven't seen it. So go back and check that out. You can find our entire catalog of episodes for free on our website, collectivenightmares.com. 
our Instagram is at Collective Nightmares. We're on iTunes and Spotify. Listen to us, subscribe. If you'll tell somebody you know who likes horror films uh, specifically or film discussion in general, recommend us. We would very much appreciate it. Let's bust down this door and see what's inside. But it's a really good thing you're here, Marshall, because otherwise I'd be standing there just jiggling that doorknob forever. <laughs> I was, it was great that you were late, actually, because I took a bunch of notes and I had a chance to sit here and look at them again. So now my brain is full of everything. Oh, good. I'm very, curious about, I'm very curious about your notes. I grabbed a sticky, uh, a thing of stickies and a pen because you said you took a bunch of notes. So I thought, oh. Maybe I'll have something to write down. And I wrote down two things that are inconsequential and that I think I could just remember. <laughs> so, all right. Well, without further ado, you're all jazzed up. Let's tell us your note list. Had you ever seen the film? I don't Isn't know. That- That's often my answer when you ask that. I, if I did, it was a long, long time ago and way before we started. Wait, no, it only came out in 2013. Then I'm going to say no, right? It's 2013. I don't understand how you don't know these things. My, my excuse for not knowing having seen a film is because I used to watch films like high and drunk out of my mind. But you, that's never been your MO. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how you could not, you spe- I mean, especially having revisited it, it when you're watching it, it doesn't. It was hard to say because I've seen some of the more recent Annabelle Films. So when Annabelle first showed up, because I didn't even realize, honestly, that The Conjuring was Annabelle when you said it. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it's Annabelle. Right. Did I see this one? I don't know if I saw it. Oh. I, I don't think I did. I think I would have remembered it better if I did. But it was it was. So I asked you a while ago for a recommendation for a scary movie. And you said you thought this was scary. And it was scary and it was fun. And I just found it to be an ideological train wreck to the point where it was really fun. Like it was really fun to pick it apart. And I just, I I couldn't get it right from the start. I knew we were in for it. And I just, I had so much fun and I never take notes during movies really like you do fairly often. And I I don't, because I have this idea that it's going to like pull me out of the film. If I'm thinking about stuff and writing it down, like I just want to experience it. But I I was trying to carry so many things in my head that I had to stop the movie at some point and go write it all down because I was like, I can't focus because I'm like trying to juggle whether I'm going to remember all of this. So I'll I'll start with an observation I had at the beginning of the film that I just led me to be fascinated by it the entire time. So this was in the scene when Ed and Lorraine were talking to the four nurses about Annabelle. And the nurses were presenting this idea that Annabelle was a little girl and, you know, she, whatever, she used to live there and she wanted to stay with them in the body of the doll. And I don't know if it was Ed or Lorraine, but somebody says, oh no, this wasn't, this isn't human. This is not a a human figure. This is a demon. And this has never walked the earth in human form. Firstly, there's no such thing as Annabelle and there never was. Ghosts don't possess such power. I think what we have here is something extremely manipulative. It's something inhuman. It was a big mistake acknowledging this doll. And through that, the inhuman spirit tricked you. You gave it permission to infest your lives. What's an inhuman spirit? It's something that's never walked the earth in human form. It's something demonic. So the doll was never possessed? No, no, it was used as a conduit. It was moved around to give the impression of possession. Demonic spirits don't possess things. They possess people. 
It wanted to get inside of you. And something about that was just like, oh, cool. What we're afraid of here is xenophobia. This is like an us versus them argument. And I thought it was so interesting that they just led, like to lead, how do I say this? You're trying to describe evil. And so what made it evil was that it's not like us, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's never walked the earth in human form. I mean, people do plenty of evil things, but what makes it like the defining feature, like the dun, dun, dun of that scene was it isn't human. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be great because the whole thing is going to be about stoking that fear, right? Fear of other. And it was just, it was a cornucopia <laughs> once, once I saw it through that lens. And I thought, you know, I, I would honestly love to do even more films like this, more supernatural films, which have never been my thing. When I choose a horror movie to watch, I'm a little bit more interested in the evil that people do. And I often feel like it's a cop-out in a film when you have some evil, scary monster. I mean, I don't know. I just, it, it doesn't usually do it for me as much as it does to watch human evil. But once I realized that, oh, this is like a really interesting ideological playground we're in where we're talking about othering and we're talking about who us, you know, us versus them and who are they and what characteristics define them. Like we talked about the bad bucket, but now we've got like the other bucket. And how do we like sort of stoke that fear? And any paranormal film, I mean, many of them probably do exactly that. And so I just, I think this is such a cool door that we opened and I'm so glad we stumbled into it. <laughs> That's great. I, <laughs> uh, I, I did not think about, I didn't think about it at all. I don't know what I was doing. I feel like I'm back to August again, where things were just whizzing by my head. <laughs> as a, just blazing by me without me p- picking up a clue and you were you were carrying the charge and then I feel like I had a few had several episodes where I was back on track and now this time I you had again you had cued me or you had primed me with saying that you had taken all these notes and I was like okay there's some gender there's some gender and some family things going on here I didn't clue into that at all I will just say, though, that before we get into your list, which I totally want to do, and I love your first point, and I think it's great, this film is, I again, and with so many of these films, particularly a rewatch, shouldn't really be that scary, and I think this film is scary, and I thought it was scary again last night, even though I know I've seen it at least once before, probably twice. I'm not a believer. I don't believe in demons or Jesus or spirits or hauntings or I don't know any of that and nonetheless this film I find scary I find it um and so I I don't know I think some of I think some of my distraction was I I was spending time thinking about why do I think this is so scary (laughs) and that's all I got I do I did just want to say that I, I think the film is is really wonderfully constructed I think James Wan who is uh, let me look up what else he has done because he he's just dominated horror for since 2000 okay yeah he won directed the original saw he made the short that got them the money for saw dead silence death sentence which is one of my absolute favorite vengeance films insidious so Okay, so that's his first decade. And then his second decade is Insidious and The Conjuring, which are two franchises now, worlds that have 
emerged or that he's created that are, I both think are really compelling. And if you liked this with the conjuring, I would love to visit insidious because insidious for me did have a lot of subtext and underlying discussion and, and whatnot. And then he went on to direct Aquaman, which he had enough success. Aquaman is some in ridiculous budget, $250 million. Obviously it's a big superhero film budget, 160 million. Okay. Still huge. And I thought Aquaman was terrible and painful and sucked. And I didn't ever actually even finish watching it. So I hate to say this. I wish him all the success in the world, but I would love for him to give up the high budget, super Hollywood mainstream superhero kind of movies and come back to <laughs> come back to directing a horror <laughs> because I really just want to give him credit as I think a, a modern master of the genre. All right. That's all I want to say. Cause I think your ideological discussion is going to be much more interesting than just my kudos for him for making scary movies. That's I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. So they're like four things I would like to dig into here, but Maybe I'll start by just trying to throw one of them out on the table and see if we can see, I'll see how many I can get out before we get hung up on having to go down that road immediately. So we'll see. But I'll start off with a proposition that when you have a film where the fear is based on xenophobia, which I absolutely think this film is, then it begs this really important question of who is us and who are they? And I guess I'm going to say more importantly, who is us? Because who are they? In this case, they are some otherworldly, whatever. But who are the us that are afraid of this encroaching other? And so that made me really aware of who the main characters were in the film and what was presented as good. And so on just a, a surface level, I'll say, you know, everybody's white. We have a very standard, happy little nuclear family. And um, Christianity is good. So that's something I think I want to dig into for sure is the what's presented as us. But can I move into one more, maybe other point on that? And then we can kind of come back to that piece if you're okay with that. It was also really, really interesting then the rules around who gets possessed and what that means, because that is like the them encroaching, right? And so it was noted that, did they say this or was this just the case in the film? Now I don't remember. It was always women. All of the examples they gave of people being possessed were women. And usually it involved children as well. So it, children, no, children were sort of possessed-ish, right? Like children were doing weird things. Women were doing weird things. But the men tended to stand outside of that interaction. And so even when you looked at Ed and Lorraine, Lorraine had this strong, she was a clairvoyant. She had a stronger connection. And frequently Ed was standing back. I'm thinking of the scene where Lorraine sees her daughter in the pond and goes running inside. And she's on the phone trying to deal with some issue. And Ed's like, what, what, what's going on? Right. Often Lorraine sees things and Ed has to kind of figure out from her what's happening because he's like more detached from the situation. The father didn't really experience haunting the way, certainly not the way the mother did or the way the children did. And I noticed that the dad went on a trip, right? Right. When the things started to really get worse, he had to take that road trip and disappear in his truck. So it's like, while he's gone, you've got a mother with five daughters, which is a lot of women for, I mean, that's a, preponderance of gender commentary right there. And then all of the examples they gave in the past, all the demons were women, all the, the women hanging out of the tree, mothers killing their children. It was all women. And there was this crucial part of the film where someone was giving a lecture. Was that Ed maybe? And he's talking about the different stages of being possessed. 
And he says it's generally the people who are weaker, psychologically weaker or something that that's, they're the ones who crack and they're the ones who first get like infested, whatever you want to call it. So which ultimately grows into oppression. The second stage. Now, this is where the victim, and it's usually the one who's the most psychologically vulnerable, is targeted specifically by an external force. Breaks the victim down, crushes their will, and once in a weakened state, leads them to the third and final stage, possession. I just couldn't help but draw parallels there to the whole ecofeminism thing, too. Right? We've talked about we've talked about ecofeminism here before and this observation, I guess, that women are often characterized as more similar to nature and what implications that has. I think we've gone down that road in more detail in other podcasts, so I I won't belabor that right this moment. But that can be a form of oppression because by associating women with that type of, with the environment, then they're sort of seen as closer to nature, maybe in a good way, but also there's a connection between the oppression of the environment and the oppression of women. And so I felt a lot of that here. Like, again, this is women are more natural argument from ecofeminism. It was like women are more in tune with something, but also they explicitly said weak or fragile, or I don't remember Ed's exact word. I think it might've been weak about who gets infested. So there's that whole piece. I'm tempted to keep going, but do you want me to stop there for a moment? I feel like we should do those two before we do more. Sounds good. More power to you for putting that together. I did get the gender. I did get the gender out of it, particularly like you said that that uh, the women were in tune, the men were outside, and and what? And yes, in particular, like you said that um, that was your first thing, right? Or your first thing was? was I guess I want to I want to have this whole conversation in the context of xenophobia, but I don't know that that needs to be discussed exactly on its own until we dig into some other stuff. Okay, so we can start with the gender. Yeah. Okay. And you introduced by saying that the film is a disaster ideologically. Yes. Yes. And I, but in many ways, not even, we haven't even touched on some of them, which will be fun, but I think so. Yes. I mean, yes. And in part of that, I did notice that in particular with, at least for me with gender of, like you said, the men are really the saviors. They're not just outside of this, but, Ed steps in and performs exorcism. So he really gets the credit for combating the demon or exercising. Because <laughs> that's, that's uh, <laughs> uh, works, works very well. That's exercising the demons. I had to think about that. Usually I use that phrase figuratively. And yeah, yes. And when dad, I didn't know what to make sense of that, but I did note that, what is, it, what is dad's name? Office Space? What's his name? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, dang it. All right, I'm looking it up. Roger, when Roger, they were working class. He was a truck driver, right? And so when he was gone, absolutely, like you said, I noticed that that's when things really ramped up. And you're right, all of the nurses were women. I'm just trying to sort through. So, so the nurses were women. Lorraine has all this insight and and the nurses were naive and invited this thing in, which really opened the whole window to the demon infestation. Like you said, Ed and Lorraine, Lorraine is the source of knowledge, but has very little action. 
from the very beginning where Ed is apparently the one who recognized that, oh, we've been brought together by God for a reason and this is what we need to do. He speaks more and is more a leader when they're doing their public presentations. And then we have the other men are the scientist, the empiricist, and the cop. So we have a wonderful alignment of masculine uh, of men with masculine ideals of empiricism and science and violence and state violence and control. And then we've got Ed and Lorraine's kid, who is a girl. We've got the five daughters of the parents. Um, and we've got every historical reference to someone who's been possessed as either a woman or it, like they were all women and children who were referenced in any of that history. There was someone associated with the Salem witch trial. There was, you know, a mother on this farm who did blah, blah, blah. They were, they were all women. Right. The one kid, Rory, was a boy. He was a boy and he was killed by his, by his mom. mom. But again, was... he's a child. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Which, right. We have a, absolutely. And just to be explicit for, for those listening, children are often... Or children are at least barred from dominant masculinity through their age. And that's probably best exemplified by the women and children first maxim. So yes, even Rory as the, as the exception in that still absolutely exists. And it's a gender neutral name, which is kind of interesting. Whatever. Go ahead. The scene where mom is deep in the throes of needing her exorcism and there are, you know, four or five men carrying her up the stairs while she's going crazy. So the men are really leading the charge and the women are the ones being impacted and like connected somehow to the other world. So it's right. So it's the men who, it's the men who are really able to be the ones to intervene and keep the women safe. And it's the women who are vulnerable to what we should know those, Possession, obsession, obstruction. What were the fucking things? God, God, Christ. It was like the first one was when they came. Oppression. One of them was oppression. One of them was literally oppression. Suppression, maybe. Was it? I'm not sure. Okay. And we have, I think it's kind of interesting that for all of the, uh, like you said, the, the emphasis that this thing is a demon and it's not human and it's, hasn't walked to earth and you invited it in and yada, yada, yada. It's still very closely aligned with the feminine and with women to the point where there are times, especially in, I just want to, yeah, all that was a big mouth garble to say the doll, Annabelle, the doll is a, a feminine, is a woman or a girl as well. And so to the point where it's just interesting to me that at some point I really stopped remembering that it was a demon and I was like it's women or it's I don't know but it was I I didn't it it was so closely integrated with femininity and with, with women that I at some point wasn't even paying attention to that being distinct okay so we've got all there's our catalog the only other character I can think of is the reporter person who I think is the only person of color who comes in and looks at the room of scary shit and asks about the animal doll. And he tells him, you know, don't touch anything. And that's it. Right. Anyway. Okay. We've got a priest 
So right. we've got all the mm-hmm. classic hegemonic patriarchal masculine institutions surrounding this at some level more or less present in the film. And yeah, that's all. Go ahead. Um, two little addenda that I'll stick on there. One, like I said, that I think it's really important that Ed's lecture at the beginning says that it's the weakest person who often gets targeted. I think that is really interesting in the context of all of this femininity and they're the ones who, who end up, you know, being struck by it. And then also because it's so frequently mothers killing their children, right? That's what the demon wants you to do. It wants you to kill your children. There's this really explicit scene at the end where they're begging, what was her name? The mom, (laughs) Roger and say anything. (laughs) Carolyn. (laughs) Okay. They're pleading with her at the end to remember how much she loves her children Right. So it's the strength of her motherhood. Like if she's a good enough mother and a strong enough mother and remember that day at the beach, remember, remember, like you can fight this. And so I, at the end of the film, when, when it was over and I just couldn't help but write this down, I thought like, oh, what we saw was this like super xenophobic triumph of motherhood over evil with Christianity and men sort of leading the charge on fixing the terrible situation here. There's more I want to say, but maybe totally. we just sit it there for it. Totally abetted by science and violence. Oh, gosh. Okay, yeah. Can I make another point, too? We can tie this together. Yeah, as we, no, Keith, as we go. Your, this um, is your show to, to run with here. This is so much fun. Okay, so I thought it was really interesting in terms of, like, the rules, right? That the evil comes out when your senses are dulled. That was, you know, and I mean, that's how it works when you're scared around the house at night, right? It's when it's dark. It's when you can't see things. It's when you're looking in a mirror. But when your your perception is limited and off is when the demon shows up. And I, I think Ed, even at some point, made that like an explicit rule of the demon. Oh, does it, it comes out at night and then it goes away when the sun comes up? So in the context of xenophobia, I thought this was really, really interesting because there's a sort of, I was trying to dig into what that means. What is it when the, when the scary thing shows up, when, you're, when your perception is tamped down? And I thought, is it some sort of anti-rationality kind of argument? Like it's, you feel it, right? You feel it, but actual, your actual senses don't reinforce it. And maybe I'm running too far down a road, but I'm going to throw this out here anyway. In a context of a xenophobic argument, it could be really interesting to say like, oh, you feel it. You know they're wrong. You know this is bad. You know it's scary. Oh, yeah, well, you don't really have any evidence. Like when the daylight's on and you can see everything and you can see the world clearly, well, no, there's no reason to be afraid. But at night, you know, those feelings, you you just know. You just know, you know. And in the context of this film, that sort of irrational, if you want to call it that fear, the fear that you only have when it's dark and you're by yourself, like I said, you're looking in a mirror and stuff you can't trust, but you can feel it. That fear ends up being rationally supported by the end. It's like, oh, they were right. Like you were right to be afraid. The people who were skeptics, well, they were totally wrong. Your argument was correct. And I just, I love just love in, as in hate, as in I was having so much fun with this, (laughs) juxtaposing that with Uh xenophobia as the core fear. That is just really cool. I love that you figured this all out, Laura. This is this is fabulous. Close is that too much of a stretch? Do you think, or are you kind of buying what I'm what I'm oh, out there? No, it's not a stretch at all. It's it's so it's so right on. And the two pieces that reinforce that most strongly for me are when, as you already referenced, Lorraine is at the water and sees her kid, whatever her kid's name is. And goes running in and it's 
It is basically she has been doing a job. She has been out of the house doing some sort of work, caring for some other family, and thereby shirking her duties, at least implicitly, as a mother. And that is what has endangered her own daughter. And so she has to call her mom to step in. And it's still this motherhood that is absolutely the what will protect. Not what, not what will protect the kid, but what will sound the alarm. And then the men have to come in and do the protecting. So that's one. And then two, God damn it. What's her name? And then two, Carolyn, when she finally goes to take a nap as a mom, that's when she gets fully possessed. And it's like, and so she's basically turned over her family to uh, Ed and Lorraine and they say, Oh, get some rest. We'll look after your family. And within your schema here, which I think is totally dead on, She's shirking her motherly duties. You, you aren't supposed to get a nap, even though you've been, your family's been possessed for, you know, a week or two weeks or however long it's been. You're supposed to be diligent all the time, always as a mom. You don't get to go nap. And when you go nap, you've shirked your duties and that has invited in the, the demon possession. And there's got to be a, some other piece with that, Laura, because... That's when she gets possessed. And it's also when Lorraine is doing her quote unquote work as doing the laundry. And there's even some moment there where Ed is like, oh, I could get used to this. And Lorraine's like me doing laundry. And he's like, no. And so, and she says it, I think she, tell me if I'm wrong, but she says it sarcastically to where. I could get used to this. What, me doing laundry? This place. Mm. Nice fresh country here. I could totally spin that into if she were doing it and was like, oh yay, yes, let's do laundry. Let's let me just be back this mother that I am and do these domestic duties. Her not doing that, maybe I'll say it this way, her not her just going through the motions and fine, I'll take this over, but I'm doing this as part of this other job. That is where she sees the demon and it's her. And that's really where the demon comes in is she is not really doing well with taking over as a mother in this traditional version of the family with the five kids and the yada yada. And she's doing the laundry. The sheet blows away. We see the outline of a body. That sheet is the conduit that goes up into the window, which is how we know that the same creature is now in Carolyn's room and infest her because she is also shirking her duties as a mother by actually taking a rest in the midst of all this when she's supposed to be protecting her kids. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> and those pieces you're putting together there, I didn't get actually. So I love what you're, I love what you're throwing out right there. I think it's right on. And I think it, it ties in with the locket that Lorraine gets from her daughter because her daughter says, you know, I miss you and daddy, like you're not here enough. And the locket is like a big, piece of right because she gets the locket back at the end is that right or there's there's something going on with the locket and the demon situation when dang it when is that yes when they are dragging carolyn back down to the basement you're right some point when they're fighting with her in the basement the locket gets ripped off or torn off or whatever and is hung there on the staircase and apparently the kid found it the youngest of the parents And that 
weakness apparently was also what, or that detachment from her daughter, that break in that symbolic link between the two lockets was also somehow fit into where or how the Warren's kid was subject to the presence of this demon as well. So yes, you're absolutely right with that. And so I'm sorry, I'm trying to think historically going back to their origin, the, I did at least, I mean, this is like (laughs) such small potatoes to what you figured out here, Laura, but I did at least figure out that infanticide, and I, I don't know if there's a specifically a gendered word for when mothers kill their own kids, because I feel like infanticide is gender neutral. But anyway, whatever side it is, throughout the original sin was the mother who is the witch who is possessed by whatever this demon is, killed her kid because that was the most horrific or offensive thing that could be done which would demonstrate her alliance with the demon. Wasn't that the origin of the, of the evil? So I did at least get that. That was like the most profound offense that they could think up was mom killing kid and doing it solely as a sacrifice to demonstrate, to show a demon. Hey, um, we're, I can't think of a, but I'm on your side or whatever. Right. Absolutely. And and I'll bounce back to the question I raised at the beginning about this being a, a film that rests its fear on xenophobia and therefore who are we? We in the film, I think, are this very white Christian um, fitting very patriarchal gender norms. Women serve as mothers and that's their role and that's where they should be. That's who we are. That's who good is in this film. We can refine that as we go on, but that just felt increasingly strong with all of these messages coming in. Oh, you're right. It's so, in my defense, nobody's attacked me. So this is my own insecurity or my own anticipatory defensiveness. I did for the first time in a long time, just actually kind of sit back and enjoy watching the film and being scared. (laughs) But that's why we do this podcast is because these films, you watch them and even me, not that I'm better than anyone else or anything else, but even me who I live to look at all this can get sucked in. I guess sometimes it even happens with you. That happened with our summer of 84 episode. Not to pull you into my failings here, but we do this podcast because you watch these films and I'm like, oh yeah, that was a really entertaining film. I was actually really kind of scared. It was so well constructed. I love the acting and the homage to other horror films and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, okay, yeah, there's some gender stuff going on. And then like, as you're pointing out, Laura, when you start getting into it, it's ideologically, it's a disaster. It's like, it's totally an ultra conservative. What what does he say? He says in seven, there's a wonderful classic line in seven where he says there's seven deadly sins and seven, seven virtues. And they were used, they were used to preach the, the gospel of, of right and wrong. And he's preaching punish the sins were used in medieval sermons. There were seven cardinal virtues and seven deadly sins used as teaching tools. Yeah, 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 like in uh, the Parsons' tale in, what's his, uh, Dante. You read them? Yeah. Hey, remember in uh, Purgatory, Dante and his buddy, they're climbing up the hill, they're checking out all the sinners, yeah? And the seven terraces of purgation. Yeah, yeah, all right. In seven, he's he uses that to say they're 
they're proselytizing to us or he's he's preaching to us and in this film they're totally preaching to us and i am as antagonistic to being preached to as anybody i could i'm aware of and i still missed it so i i really appreciate that you picked all this up laura and that you're sorting this out and i am now seeing just how all i can think of now is the whole movie we're being told <laughs> yeah if you step out of the rigid <laughs> the, the family patriarchal structure of pre-america the 1600s <laughs> you are gonna get infiltrated by demons and be subject to endless harassment and torture and possibly the death of your kids and and yourself and family and yada 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 <laughs> okay i'm ready for point two i think <laughs> <laughs> that's what was so fun and watching it is exactly what you're saying that these things aren't obvious necessarily I was fortunate in that in that first conversation with the nurses, like I said, I just the xenophobia thing that line struck me. And so I was I was looking through this lens for the entire film. But I think that people watch films and you don't necessarily realize what the ideology is that's being fed to you, but I think it has an impact anyway. And so it's interesting to peel this apart and say, like, what are they really presenting and what what are they really supporting and what types of fears are they stoking? Because I don't think it's necessarily obvious. And it's fascinating to think about what that, not only what that can do to society, but also how it's a reflection of society in ways that may not even have been intentional on the part of the filmmakers. You know, I don't know how much they set this up to try to make an argument and how much they just drew on their own stereotypes that they couldn't even see because they were so embedded in their own culture. And that's, I think that's fascinating. I would like later to come back to what I was saying about the the sort of rationality and the senses being dulled and all of that, because I, I don't think I would like to hear your follow up on that because I'm not entirely sure I believe the strings I tied together there, but I, I like them. So we could either do that or we can move on to something else and maybe come back to that later. Wait, I'm sorry. I was, you wanted to hear my thoughts on, on what now? I'm sorry. The argument I was laying out there about rationality and about the fact that it's only when their senses are dulled, when a blindfold is on, when they're in the dark, when they're alone and asleep and looking in the mirror, that that's when the fear that that's when the fear I'm arguing is xenophobia in this film. And that's when it's strongest that during the light of day, when it's, when it's daylight, they even gave this as a rule of the demon that when it's daytime and other people are there and whatever, that these horrible things don't happen, but they happen when your senses are taken down. And so I just really wanted to draw a connection there between empirical evidence, right? Which would say that you, you feel the fear, but when you can see things clearly and when you can sort of see the world around you, it's not there, but and, and if the fear that the film is based on is xenophobia, then I think there's a there's a potentially dangerous argument, like I said, unless I'm tying strings together just because I want them to tie together, that feeling xenophobic, like I'm afraid of you, whoever you are, right? You're scary, you're different, you're bad, you're wrong. I can feel it, I know it. Well, no, I can't see it in the light of day. Like, no, there's no evidence really to indicate it when my senses are clear, but like, if I'm blindfolded and if I just dig inside, this fear is there, you know? And by the end of the film, that fear gets validated because it's found to be rational, right? The people who have this sort of ambiguous fear that again, doesn't come out in the light of day, but, but is there and they know it, even if skeptics think it doesn't exist. Those people are right by the end of it. And so I feel like there is a, some kind of implicit support for xenophobia as in, it doesn't matter if you can't 
pull any actual tangible evidence that those people are scary. If you feel it, you know, and that you just think they're scary, you're probably right. That gut sense that you have when you're alone by yourself at night is probably right. It's a wonderful question. I think there are some pieces that I don't know how exactly they would fit into that. I think there's a lot of support for that, but the, the two that come to mind are, it may well be xenophobia, but that xenophobia is never attached to anything other than women or mothers. But would it promote in a viewer? Because I think the other here, by being non-human and demonic and whatever that is, it's not pegged on like a certain demographic group or anything like that. that that's but, kind of where I'm getting at. It, it's amorphous, but I mean, it is amorphous, but we're back to what I said before, which I don't, I don't think is, I think has some weight here is that to the point where it's there. You're absolutely right. They specifically say it's inhuman, it's demonic, but that's all fine and well and good. But if, what am I trying to say here? Uh, there's something about, damn it. Um, can I throw out a sentence? Yeah, please, try? please, please. Yeah. The, my fear, I guess, is that the, the message the film gives is that fear of other is correct. Even if you don't really have sort of tangible daylight evidence to support it, that scariness, you know, that, that fear that you have in your gut of this other thing is right. And by the end of the film, it's validated. Demons did exist, right? You weren't just imagining things in the dark in your house with a blindfold on. Like they really are there and scary. And, and if the fear that this draws on is this sort of xenophobic fear, and I, I just mean of other, I don't mean like one particular group, but just not us, then it reinforces that, that mentality or that perspective in the world. Okay. And then the linkage with empiricism versus, I'm going to say science versus religion, which it's really probably more empiricism versus irrationality, irrational, irrational, whatever. These binaries line up, right? Science, love it. Yeah. empiricism, masculinity with irrational emotion, femininity. The linkage is with the Salem witch trials, it was, a, it was exclusively a gendered phenomenon, right? Which is, I suppose, could have been men, but they weren't. And the Satan the devil. That's what I want to add to is there's, it's not just science or it's on that list of binaries. So what should it have been? It should have been rational science, empiricism, masculinity, irrational religion, emotion, femininity. It is a xenophobia, but I have a hard time just saying a xenophobia, Laura, because it is so heavily um, linked with 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 femininity, with women. It's not, like you said, it is amorphous. They don't ever say, oh, well, it's some black person or whatever, right? But it it's, so they don't ever say that, but I think they're, I think they're still, it's funny. It's like they're able to make a really super sexist argument while shirking the ability of having to say, I'm making a really super sexist argument. It's a really specious, superficial, like, no, oh, that's not really what I was saying. You're the one who added gender to it. I just said it's a demon. It's like, no, you've built the whole fucking movie around the fact that it's demons acting through women and only women and always women. It's I, I, I think that's my hesitation is my hesitation is to leave it amorphous, even though technically it is. 
because there's so much of it that is attached to these these uh, sides of the binary that are femininity and women. That's that's where I'm hung up on right now. I see what you're saying. I like what you're saying a lot, actually. So, and I think what you're arguing, and maybe this is a question that can carry over into viewing more of these films, is you're saying that that the the other in the xenophobia that I'm proposing is a certain view of, or a a certain, I don't know, behavior or whatever you want to call it, a certain women, but a certain kind of woman, right? A woman who doesn't fall into the sort of motherhood norm and through the context of just how the film looks and well, and the fact that Christianity is good, right? It would be a, a Christian mother is in white, I would say, given again, the casting of the film is the good version. And the other is other versions of femininity. Right, because, well, I don't know if it's more important or as important, but the offense, that original offense is, let's see, she was one of the women accused of witchcraft in Salem. She was hung during the trials. After, After Bathsheba, Bathsheba married, married Jetson, Jetson, they had a baby. And when the baby was seven days old, Jetson caught her sacrificing it in front of the fireplace. She ran out to that tree by the dock, climbed up, proclaimed her love to Satan, cursed anyone who tried to take her land, and hung herself. Which, that to me, means there's an argument to be made that her true offense or at least the offense that was as important as killing the kid was the fact that she was disloyal to her husband by being loyal to Satan. It was a infidelity and the kid was, and let's face it in the 1600s, I mean, kids mattered, but it's not like today. If you were a father, you really would have, what you would have been upset about was oh, my wife loves Satan, not I lost a kid. Probably going to lose three or four kids in your life anyway. (laughs) That's a joke, but it's not. So that is just a further, like you said, just to clarify really how conservative we're being. It's it's, the offense is, is the disloyalty to the husband and the disruption of that motherly role and uh, there was something, hold on. Um, oh, and yeah, that that is even further reinforced by at some point, oh, they ask if the kids have been baptized as though that would help. And Roger's like, well, we're not really church going people. And Ed says to him, oh, maybe you ought to rethink that. So it is, again, if you had been good Christian people, you might be in a better position now to deal with all this. You weren't. I mean, we'll see what we can do, but, you know. (laughs) That's exactly where I wanted to go next was the religion piece. Right. Because more so than many, many, many films we've watched that have religious messaging or undertones or whatever, this film in its world explicitly lays out that the Christian version of religion is correct. It is flat out correct, right? You anger the demons by putting crosses around the house and, you know, crosses come out of people's bodies and it's Christianity is right. It's the rule of the movie. It's that right. And, but what just one sort of caveat I'll give to that is that the church, right? The Catholic church is also presented as ineffective. And that's an interesting combination. I'd like to dig into that a little bit because right. The, the priest that they go see has to go rogue and go kind of outside the confines of the institution to try to make this happen. And he gives these comically bureaucratic rules of, well, it's going to take some time and we got to, we got to have a meeting and then you're going to have to collect your evidence. And, 
And finally he says, okay, okay, I'll sort of go off on my own and do it. And then the, the film ends with them getting a phone call or something saying, oh, the Vatican finally approved the exorcism. It's, it's stated that the actual institution itself is not effective, yet Christianity as a core, right, is 100% affirmed in the case of the film. Okay, that's perfect, because that's where I was going to go yet next, because my other hitch was that when you were talking about the rationality and the darkness, darkness, as we're lining up our binaries, darkness is with that emotion and femininity and yada yada, and lightness is aligned with masculinity and, and science and empiricism and rationality, except for the fact that the that they set up all of this actual empirical instrumentation and scientific, at least for the seventies. I mean, it's, it's scientific, it's science. We've got recordings, we've got film, we've got, that is empiricism, right? We are demonstrating and we are logging empirical proof of this. And what you were just saying helps me resolve that because the way I think that plays out in the movie is that, it is acknowledging the empiricism that is necessary, but it is positioning it as subservient to the irrationality and the religion because it is used only in service of demonstrating that the religious bit is really the important part. We need it to prove stuff, but we knew it was there. Now we're just... Uh, now, and we need to show it to someone in the church who's symbol of the irrationality and the, the whatnot. So they need that proof and they're able to get that proof. I just thought it was interesting in a film like this. I mean, they do that in, uh, sorry, I just went down a whole road in my head. I want to say something on the subservience also. So are Please. you going to get farther away? I think another point that the rationality or the empiricism is in service to the irrationality and the religion is that it's the fears that people have at the beginning of the film are seen as irrational or like I said again to tie back to what I was saying but they only happen at night they only happen when you're blindfolded they only happen when your senses are dulled that ends up being proven true by empiricism later on and so it's the the gut the intuition the irrational piece of it was correct first and they sort of bring in the cameras and the measurements and the whatever to just support what was already existing at the beginning. So I think that I think that positions it second in the chain also. It affirms the irrational. Totally, which, yeah, that's what I was trying to sort out, which is super interesting because it's, and I was thinking also about the lectures at, at these colleges where university is as emblematic of scientific accumulation of knowledge and empiricism is anything. And they are in these spaces and they're using this evidence to demonstrate and convince all of these people who are students of science that your science actually has limits and your science is, that's all well and good. And it's not ever even questioned. And they also they also tear down the importance of science by, which I totally thought of you when they had the, it's a small scene, but when they go to the, they have the, somebody at, they're at somebody's house and they're like, no, this is the water pipes and something was happening here in the attic and blah, blah, blah. Rarely is it actually something supernatural. If your house isn't possessed. 
that's a classic Laura best version of your argument of let's acknowledge that the skeptics who would say like me, "Eh, it's not a ghost or it's whatever, all this other crap. It's none of this crap, right? It's exactly what they say in the film. It's something breaking or expansion or heat or water or whatever, right? There's some sort of rational explanation. So they're, they're acknowledging all that. They're saying, yes, that is true sometimes, but that's all fine, well, and good. But if we're going to acknowledge that, that a lot of times it's not the supernatural, you should then meet us to say, oh, but the supernatural does happen too. And present this real false equivalence that is, I don't know, I feel like that's some sort of technique of argument or debate or something. And I don't know, I don't know all of that typology. I didn't do debate in high school or anything, but it's very interesting that, and I have to say the to the credit of the film, in every case that we're discussing here, we have this theme and every time that theme's brought up, we can think of multiple instances that support that theme from very small symbolic actions or objects to a mid-level narrative scene level acknowledgement and support to a thematic structural ideological support. So every one of these pieces, every one of these bits of rope, they're weaving together from the ground up. And I, you know, I I mean, yeah, I I hate to, you know, I, it's in service of, I, I, like you've said, Laura, an ideologically hyper conservative, bizarrely conservative, overarching motif, but it is super well done. <laughs> super well yes, done. That's what was so fun. That's why I couldn't stop making notes through all of it. I was like, oh, I'm loving this. <laughs> like it's a nightmare, but I'm loving it. But okay, you, I think you just, what you just said was great. And I think it's going to allow me to make the argument I've just tried to make several times and it hasn't quite come together, but now I think it will. So, and wait, what did you just say? <laughs> it was when we were talking about irrationality right before the caveat about the film tying all these pieces together. Irrationality, like trumping science and... Like a false equivalence of we acknowledge that science matters, but if that's true, you have to acknowledge that religion is necessary as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So it's it's arguing for the irrational and it's arguing for the non-empirical, I guess, approach to viewing the world. And so I, I do think that then by having the fear be real, right, it, it could be arguing that I wanted to, initially I was trying to pin this on, like like you said, and sort of an amorphous xenophobia, but let's just take it as the film lays out the structure, right? If you have this fear of women being something other than white Christian moms, <laughs> then that fear is going to be validated through the film, right? That is a correct fear to have. The message it's giving you is that that fear is right. Even if science maybe says it's wrong and empirical evidence and like truth, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> says it's wrong. Like it, you feel it in your gut and your gut is going to be proven right by the end of the film. And eventually empirical science world has to jump on board and say, okay, fine. This irrationality was correct because ultimately even empirical science is going to believe it. Yes, totally. Which having so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good this is Christmas. Which would totally explain why this was a super popular film, because it was surprisingly for as much as it's there, it was surprisingly not. I mean, it's preaching, but it's not. It's, exactly. It's all done. It's really done with a deft and subtle hand. It's all done by showing much more so than telling, which then you have to work backwards to figure out. And if you're on the side of the conservative, you're watching this and you're probably thinking, okay, yeah, that's cool. And if you're even someone like me, you're like, well, this is scary and it's not obnoxiously pro Jesus. I mean, you got, even I'm willing to acknowledge, okay, if we're going to have a possession film, there's got to be some acknowledgement of religious iconography, whatever. I can still enjoy that film. So I will sort of give it a pass and there's kind of enough. Again, it's a classic Laura move of make your best argument. And they do, they acknowledge the science and that comforts me. That keeps me invested because I get this little pacifying, placating, oh, your science is good, is valid too. You don't have to get up in arms about how obnoxious this film is. Um, (laughs) And meanwhile, I'm sitting here and I was duped like a sucker. $20 million budget grossed $137 million in the U.S., 40 opening weekend. So opening weekend, it doubled its money. I'm sure Hollywood love to see that, especially for a $20, $20 million film. Cumulative worldwide gross, $320 million. So he, what's that, 16 times payoff? Yeah, I'm I'm sure that's they, why they gave him <laughs> more movies to make. What is your thing? Make the make your enemy's best argument or make the other side's best argument? That's what I was trying to say. I don't think I ever completed that thought, but it's a very Laura make the other side's best argument. Acknowledge the importance of science and empiricism and then move on back to the importance of belief. Now, then we should, I think, as you mentioned, get back to the fact that why then not have it go through the church. Is that another bone that they're throwing to people like me of this isn't, I'm not going to say this is absolutely pro Christian pro church. It's really just a matter of belief to make it a little bit more. And that makes it just a little bit more open, especially for a global film, maybe other countries. Okay. This doesn't need to be Catholic Vatican Catholic It's a matter of, do you believe in the spiritual and do you believe in demonology? And it's through that, that it's really just his belief that Ed is able to accomplish at the exorcism because he's aligned with the church, but he's not in the church. So I just, that's the one thing that's still kind of odd to me is why work outside the, why have the church not be capable of of responding in a way that's effective. I guess I have two ideas. One might be just this American rugged individualism kind of spirit that it plays into. They could be appealing to audiences in general. And two could be practical because we want Ed to do the exorcism because if they bring in an expert, then suddenly Ed and Lorraine are 
these interesting crucial characters to the film. And since the film is kind of based around the true story of their legacy or whatever. They could have had the father. I mean, they have access to the the priest. He may not have been approved by the Vatican, but the the exorcist, that's the that's they could have taken the page from from that book. And isn't is that how that plays out in the exorcist? Is he says, okay, well, I haven't actually gotten formal approval from the Vatican yet, but I'm still going to come in because, and perform this exorcism. Isn't that how that works out? I don't remember. It makes me want to rewatch The Exorcist because so much of this was was absolutely pulled from The Exorcist, including the fact that when we were talking about all the empiricism and science and and demonstration, they do exactly the same thing. They they have they take Regan to the mental hospital and they have her go through all these tests and they kind of acknowledge something's wrong, but they give her pills or something that don't really solve her issue. Excuse me. And then somehow Father Karras is listening to a recording of her with her psychiatrist or something. And here's the Latin, the backwards Latin. So it's still back to like, okay, I have empirical evidence. And I think he takes that tape. I think it's real to real actually, but I think he takes that recording to the church and uses that to appeal to them to say, because I think it's the same scenario of exorcists or exorcisms have to be approved by the Vatican and here's your proof and, or here's the, here's what you need to escalate the, the request or whatnot. So there's a lot of homage or whatever you want to call it, uh, reference to the exorcist in those ways. And now I'm trying to decide if, and so it makes me want to rewatch the exorcist. Cause I'm like, God, I wonder if the exorcist had this much or had any of this really hyper conservative ideological pieces. And I, I just, and I, I don't know. I don't know if I've watched the exorcist since, since I really started picking apart films this way, or if I did, if I was just enjoying it because it's one of my, one of my favorite films, that's another, maybe we can do that at some point in the future for a future episode for now. I had the exact same question. And, and it really, it made me want to do a series on these. Like we did a series on rape revenge films. And I feel like we learned a lot in the context of that. I thought, oh, this is such an interesting box. And I would like some other points. I would like to do something like Poltergeist where it's outside of this exact, there are variations on this theme that could be really interesting to dig into and just see how these arguments are laid out and what similarities they have and what differences they have. And the range of argument that's put forth in these types of films. Yeah. Well, I mean, shit, we could do, (laughs) I was going to say, we could do every film that this film gives homage to starting with Poltergeist. (laughs) With the possible exception of Christine, which I don't remember there being, I haven't watched Christine in so long. I don't have any idea if that has any ideological argument or not. But we could totally watch Poltergeist. We could totally watch The Exorcist. What else did this film reference? Who is who is Cindy in horror? Do you know? Because we've got Christine. It's the car, if nothing else. Nancy is Nightmare on Elm Street. Carol, Carolyn is, is from Poltergeist. And then we've got Cindy and April. Who the, who the shit are Cindy and April? That's so good, Marshall, because I didn't catch any of those. I mean, why not call Cindy Carey and uh, just make it easy on us? <laughs> Carey is also totally, I think that was a missed opportunity, James. If there's one thing that you missed in this 
beautifully constructed film besides, you know, perpetuating a horrible ideological argument <laughs> is you ought to have named Sydney Cindy Carey because Carey is obviously a story of mother and daughter and possession and demonology and gender roles and uh it would have been a lovely except maybe they didn't use carrie because carrie's actually at least from what i from what i remember about the film is is very um carrie is actually very progressive in its uh ideological argument regarding motherhood so maybe they maybe they were correct in not uh using that name because they wouldn't want to give homage to a progressive and by progressive, I mean more modern than 17th century gender norms. <laughs> they didn't want to. They didn't want to do that. Uh, oh shoot! All right, what else? What else do we have? This is great, Laura. I think that about does it. Actually, um, I think I will just go back to the the thing I sketched down right when the film was over because I just couldn't help but like vomit this out into my notepad and I was like oh it's totally a xenophobic triumph of motherhood over evil with men in Christianity there to take the lead and make sure everything goes well and you know you know those women I, I thought of you in many a scene where the women couldn't get the doors open and the guys had to come and kick down the door for them you know it's a good thing they were there Christianity and the men needed to be there because even though the women had all of the connective powers and were really the main characters of the film um if the men weren't there to speak and knock down doors you know <laughs> this, this wouldn't have and bring the equipment as well this probably and carry her up the stairs probably wouldn't have gone too well right totally so all right so i'm looking at imdb for the the writers of this film and they wrote the reaping which is a 2007 film the imdb synopsis is a former christian missionary who specializes in debunking religious phenomena investigates a small town which seems to be suffering from the 10 biblical plagues and then the conjuring conjuring 2 the crucifixion 2017 i don't remember this film either when nicole comes in contact with father anton more and more inexplicable inexplicable events occur the pair begin to believe that the priest lost the battle with a demon point being it sure seems like they have a real prominent pro-religious pro or very conservative bend in their in this series of films that they've produced and written whiteout do you have you seen any of these films Mm-mm. I don't know that film at all. That doesn't have an overtly Christian message. Now, here's the interesting part. The Turning, which we saw previews for. You'll have to look it up if you don't remember. But this is a 2020 film. And the synopsis from IMDb is, a young governess is hired to look after an orphaned girl, but the return of the girl's problematic brother uncovers secrets from their past. Now, the interesting wrinkle on that for me is The Turning is directed by the same person floria sigismondi who directed a number of episodes of the handmaid's tale which is very critical of restrictive historical gender roles especially for women so i'm very intrigued to see (laughs) if she ended up making a perhaps not completely wittingly a super conservative horror film 
not realizing that the the authors of her of the screenplay for her film are very pro Christian conservative filmmakers or film authors, screenwriters. I really wonder too, if there are films that could be done in this genre that kind of like you, I think were initially willing to give the benefit of the doubt to this film that would have the conceit of religion. I mean, to some extent in a film like this, religion or irrationality is going to have to triumph over empiricism. So I think it's going to have to, because that's the structure of the film, right? It's about a supernatural creature, but can that be done in a context that doesn't also make all these sort of corollary problematic arguments? And I don't know, like it made me want to go back and revisit all these other films and say, was all this same messaging there and I just didn't see it? Or this one, just a particular minefield of these types of messages that really wasn't there in some of these other films. I mean, I think the, the core us versus them nature of the argument and of the fear is probably going to be present. But in this film, the them, I guess, is given a, a shape and is, is problem, <laughs> not the demons, as you, the argument you made. I think I'm, I'm right on board with you that they laid out what we should be afraid of in this film. And <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty bad, but is it always, I don't know. Like we saw some film, I mean, some of that, how about this? A couple of things. One is Carrie does do that. I think in many ways, but it, which got me to thinking then that a lot of this is going to be problematic. And again, I'll go back to the exorcist in that she is a successful single working mother and I don't remember exactly how that plays out, but clearly then her, the mother daughter relationship is challenged and the, the priests or the father, the men have to come in and, and save the day. And then I got to thinking, well, given the fact that so far as I know, priests are still all men, (laughs) that's going to have those gender dynamics unless we get either a single father and that is operating or that shifts it somehow, or we've got a woman religious figure, which is going to have to probably be less is going to have to be less connected to at least the formal church. There is the nun, which I don't think we ever watched. I wonder if there are two pieces there then about, First of all, as was explicitly noted in this film, the weakness of women, because it's the the weaker or the more fragile or unstable or however it is they said it, people that tend to get possessed. And also maybe something to be said about the use or depiction of women's bodies, right? Because a lot of this, a lot of these scenes are very body centric and you see people writhing and their bodies writhing and sweating and you see a lot of skin and you see that a typically male audience might rather watch a woman's body do that than watch a man's body. And so I wonder if that has something to do with the choice of the victim as well. I'm trying to decide if the Carolyn vomiting blood into the sheet covering her is at all invocative of menstruation. I feel like there's a sexual piece to all of this. It can, I mean, it can vary from film to film. There's something about the woman's body writhing and sweaty, I guess, that I wouldn't ignore. And I, I think could be a factor in the gender dynamics. I don't actually think that was that was a menstrual piece. I just wanted to think about it because 
with the whited hooded thing. And I don't know. I don't think it's there. The only sex in the film, in this film at all, is they christen the new home. And for no apparent reason, the oldest daughter flirts with the photographer equipment guy, kind of, for like a half a second. Again, I'm really picking small small pieces here, but that didn't strike me as really necessary. <laughs> I, I do want to say this. This is something else I thought about because I was really thinking about the the world construction and the myth construction in the film. It I just, I have to be, I still have to be impressed with how beautifully the film is constructed. And part of that was me thinking or noticing that and this will actually tie back in, thanks to what you've laid out here, Laura, of I was thinking that part of the power and the how effective it is in terms of constructing fear is that there are multiple sources of danger. And so we, we are faced with threats or possible threats from various pieces. We've got the music box, we've got Annabelle, we've got the house, we've got the demon that maybe isn't attached to the house and we've got the tree where the hanging was. So we have these multiple points of, of danger. And that seemed to me a really effective uh, device for producing fear because so often, particularly in the less well-constructed, we know it, right? Clowns, the clowns, the scary part, see a clown, be scared. If you don't, don't. And so if you don't see a clown, you're like, well, whatever. And then the clown may pop up and, oh, okay, the clown's there. But, okay, great. It's all, that's all very overt and obvious. This is a very Foucauldian construction of horror. (laughs) In that it is diffuse and amorphous. And that also contributes to what you're talking about, Laura, with this feeling and this uh, I, I hold on. I had it of that multiple, again, diffuse multiple sources of threat somehow links up with what you were talking about of you should believe in your fears, even though you don't have, or especially even if, especially if you feel it coming from a general sense of wherever, whatever. And by having it in the multiple places, it, it reaffirms that right of, Oh, well, if this didn't scare you at this point in time, you should still pay attention to your feelings because it may be coming from another point of danger. There's something there about that further reinforcing that notion. And then, so he's got the multiple points. He's has the historical myth building, which is great. There was something else of I'm thinking through the other things I was thinking about the the construction of the fear. And what I, as part of that, I wanted to point out that, how about this? It's interesting that the, the demon is first introduced and is connected to this, the land. This is my land. No one should ever live here. I give over to Satan or whatever it was, but that was it. Right. And then it was like subdivided, subdivided. And they had this piece where these other people were killed or these other kids died or went missing or whatever. in these other places that used to be that land, but now it's 
but it's really concentrated here because of the hanging and whatever else, I guess, right? That was the source. That was the center. But then they make the specific additional point to say, it's not going to help you to just leave. And actually they demonstrate that of, they try to take her out. And I think Lorraine says, you can't bring her out of the house now. Before it was like, oh, leave, whatever. The demon will just go with you. And then it was like, no, you can't have Lorraine leave. And so it's just, what was I going to say? I was going to say, it's interesting that they attached the demon to her rather than the land because that would fend off or that would that would really make it about her as a woman, as a person, more so than the land. And then I was thinking that's interesting because, because it em- further emphasizes that this is an embodied, gendered situation. But then we do have the land, and I was like, okay, well, maybe it is the house. And it's like, and okay, so then we have a perfect alignment there. It's like, it is attached to her, and it is attached to the land, but really what she needs to do more than anything else is the woman needs to stay in the home. (laughs) It would be dangerous to her anywhere else, but it's really dangerous to her if she actually, heaven forbid, leave the house. And I I think the only time she leaves the house in the entire film is to wave goodbye to her kids on their way to school on the one day. And she she goes out out of the house for like 20 feet or something. Does she ever... Oh, she goes to, she's the one who goes to the college and tracks down the Warrens. Of course, that was before she was actually possessed. I don't know. I was just trying to see if there was something inside, outside there. I was thinking it's attached to her as a person and we're making sure that it's her as a person, not a house because we want it to be a possession rather than a haunting and it's not the space, it's the person. And I was, that's what I was trying to sort out there. Sorry. I think those are interesting points. And I think that's also an interesting thing to look for patterns because again, I I can't, I, this was the first time I thought about a film in this way. And so I would love to see other types of films like this and exactly parse out the things you're talking about. Yeah. Is the haunting attached to a person or is it attached to a space? And what does that have to say about the ideology that it's putting out there? I think those are really, really great questions. Yeah. There's one other tiny uh, piece I might like to throw out just you mentioned it being attached to the land or the sense that this was her land, whatever the original witch or whatever that was. And I just think it's funny. There was a, a, a thread for me through the whole film, again, thinking about who, who is us and just the self-centeredness maybe of the demon set up in the first place that again, first of all, that, Oh, it's not human. You know, it's, it's other, it's not like us. And then to think like these demons apparently have all this time to like spend their entire life trying to be human or trying to torment people or, oh, you know, like, like they're, they're interacting with humans so much, but they're not humans. And like, why do the demons care? Like, oh, because we're telling the story and us is like, we are the most fascinating center of the entire universe. So of course, everybody cares about what we're doing. And there are all these creatures trying to modify what we do or don't do or whatever. And it just fit with, I mean, it fits with, I think religion as an overarching theme when I think about that graphic of what is like an apple slice or something where like the, the skin on the apple is like how long humans have been around in the history of the earth. And yet we tell all these stories about how everything was put together just for us and we're the important things. And there's someone watching what we're doing because we're again, the center of the world. And that was just kind of interesting. And then also thinking like, yeah, us is this sort of Christian white set of people. And 
in that time period, like, oh, it's, it's her land, you know, <laughs> this is ours, this is mine, which I mean, historically is not true, but so what, because we're just white Christians and we don't see outside of that bubble. It was somebody else's land <laughs> before it was your land, but nobody, nobody cares. We don't know. It doesn't matter if that was outside the context of our narrative that is all about us and us being again, the center of the universe. And rarely do we get a situation where that's so beautifully tied in. I mean, they're literally referencing colonial times. <laughs> they're colonialists <laughs> with the with Salem and Witchchild. So yes, they're on land that is not theirs in the same way that the land now is not ours, except it was like not their land five years before instead of like 400 years before. <laughs> but all of a sudden now it's my land. I feel like there was something with we talked about with Pet Cemetery with that, but uh, that's okay. That's not what I was going to say, or that's what I was most interested in. I was going to say something about... Shit. Oh, I think it's something to wor- at least acknowledge that this is all done, and this is all, like you said, everything is as white, colonial, Christian, conservative as anyone being made by a Chinese man. <laughs> James Wan is a Malaysian-born Australian film director. Sorry, the, apparently, I'm sorry, I, I was looking at this wrong on IMDb. His name is given in Chinese. So let me correct that and say James Wan is a Malaysian born Australian film director, which just goes to show you that we've talked about this with some other films. We talked about it with Swallow and we talked about it with Assassination Nation that diversity is a wonderful and crucial value and thing to aspire to. But just because someone may be a person of color or a man or a whoever they are does not necessarily mean it's going to drive their film or their story to be progressive or conservative or conservative or not. In this case, I mean, those other films are we've noted as testaments to the fact that like a white man in the case of assassination nation can totally make a fun, radically feminist progressive film. And in this case, a Malaysian man who sports red hair in this in this thing which is a lesson to me right don't ever judge by a cover but uh i wouldn't necessarily think of someone who looks like this making this much of a pro-white conservative film that's really all i'm trying to say christian film so great the film is there anything else to say before we i do want to cut back in and just say that One more thing to acknowledge of how well he constructed this film is to add on the, to do the bookend that was pioneered with, I think, Texas Chainsaw Massacre of this is real. This is based on the true story. And I have to say at the end where they do the follow-up and then the credits are, here's the actual people that were dramatized and we're going to, instead of showing a, picture of Patrick Wilson and putting the actor's name up there. We're going to show supposedly whoever Ed Warren actually was and put Patrick Wilson's name up. So that you know that this actor was playing this real person. None of that is actually true. None of that, but he's building that mythology and acknowledging and like, and, and using those, those very traditional or very longstanding tradition of devices of based on a true story, but 
modernizing it to include these subtle touches that I think are really smart and that are really effective to where I look at that and I'm like, oh man, this was based on true story. <laughs> uh, okay. So that's it. All right. So Laura and I both teach sociology at CU and what we have constructed as our metric for or rubric for evaluating films in terms of their social responsibility, which includes things like representation, the ideological messaging, subtext of the film, the experience of it, a number of different factors that we consider. This is somewhat connected to our enjoyment or entertainment in terms of the film, but it really, that's secondary. Our primary concern is what what is the messaging that's happening in this film and and what does that contribute? Okay, Laura, now you can, please. I think grading it, it's it's a resounding F, but even more so. Well, and so I want to hit on what you said too about the entertainment value of the film because that's super relevant in this one. I think it's an F already. It's just an F because everything it promoted was bad. But you made the point, I don't know, some months back, that the entertainment value is really important because it will encourage people to see the film. And we were talking then about a film, it may have been in Fabric, where the argument was really good, but the experience of watching it was a bit tough. And arguing that it's a better film if it's fun to watch, because then it'll encourage a lot of people to see it and get exposed to that argument. And so here, I think we have the opposite, where, like I said, it was it was an F from ideology just already. But then you take the fact that it was actually a totally enjoyable, totally scary, like, I really had fun watching it film. And that just, from a perspective of moral responsibility, makes it so much worse, because now it's like, it's going to spread. <laughs> and I understand why. I mean, again, I had a really good time watching it. I, I was glad that you had said that this was scary, because it was a fun experience. So it's like an F, and then it's like an F, it just gets worse, <laughs> because... Because it was such a good movie on top of it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we said it was $320 million at the box office worldwide. This is a global sensation. And it sparked a sequel. And it looks like they're going to do a third that comes out next year. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. It's not just The Conjuring 3. Sadly, it is not directed by James Wan. Apparently he got into the superhero money because he's slated to direct Aquaman too. Who knows how I would, I would love to know how much money they offered him to do that. So anyway, so he stepped away from, from his conjuring trilogy, which is sad, but that happens fine. And yeah, so it was a hugely popular global sensation and what it's doing is, as Laura said, it bad things. It's sending really bad messages and bad being hyper-conservative, restrictive, limiting, disparaging notions about women and science and families and rationality. And again, just encouraging othering. I mean, I think by the core fear that it stokes being fear of someone not like you, that in itself is a bit of trouble. Yes. I mean, I agree with you completely, Laura. It's, it's absolutely an F. We could go through and, and debate how low of an F it needs to be. <laughs> but I think in this case, we'll just suffice it to say it's an F. And that is primarily for the ideological. In this case, as Laura's emphasizing, I totally agree. The 
enjoyability and the popularity of the film actually works it against it because it's so bad. <laughs> and it really doesn't have any other redeeming pieces. And being super fun to watch. Right, right. <laughs> right. I'm just trying to think. Sometimes we will acknowledge that something. Oh my God. Okay, here. Sometimes there are other things that could redeem a film. I'm sure this doesn't pass the Bechdel cast. It has no diversity. It has a, I'm just going through our rubric of all these things that we considered to see if there was anything redeeming about the film at all. Not that it would get it out of the F range, but it might, even on an F paper, I try and write something positive. <laughs> so I guess we do have the, the enjoyable, you made a wonderful film to watch. It was scary. I got to say that. I still can't. I'm mystified by the fact that particularly with so many of these movies for it to be really for me scary is pretty great and then the violence uh ratio gratuity not that it was gratuitous in fact it's interesting in that it was actually conservative in its portrayal of violence i think as well so that was that was it too it did get an r rating so i don't know why this was r i think this could have been given a pg-13 there's no f F words, so F bombs. There's no nudity. It's scary. I guess maybe the MPA decided it's just scary enough, which that's kind of a credit to the film itself. So, okay, well, hard F. Nothing really redeeming other than scary and entertaining to watch, engaging, masterfully constructed. Is that anything final, last? That was great. It was super fun to watch and it was super fun to pick apart. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. This was a good, this was great. I'm glad you brought so much to this episode, Laura. Uh, Cause I obviously really didn't, didn't, I was mystified by Juan and I kind of resent that. Cause I, I don't, I like to th- might think of myself as someone who is so rarely subject to that. <laughs> so I guess, that's a kudos to him or uh, whatever you want to say. Well, with that, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you joining us. Hope you uh, keep coming back. Tell your friends about our podcast, our happy little podcast here. We're still, still going through the era of COVID and horror films are our collective nightmares. Will you join us while we conjure up a discussion about this film? But that's that's too... I, I was trying to think of some kind of deeper cut. Let's bust down this door and see what's inside. But it's a really good thing you're here, Marshall, because otherwise I'd be standing there just jiggling that doorknob forever. <laughs> uh, not to discount your bust down the door. That's too easy for me too, along with my conjure. I, I wanted something... Deeper cut. Oh, okay, here. Um, We appreciate you joining us. Let us open the door to our archive of demonic possessions and tell you a story about The Conjuring. That wasn't as good as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. But I was like, oh, there's an episode for each one of our little films that's our scary 
thing in the whatever that doesn't work i didn't get it <laughs> it wasn't that good i it was a good idea but then when i was saying it it's like no it doesn't really um we appreciate you joining us you may think of our podcast as an inhuman spirit that invades your mind and we are going to hopefully show you the way to exercise that notion <laughs> not loving it <laughs> no they're all bad laura yeah you, you might you led the charge on this one you might have to that <laughs> you might have to come up with one otherwise what you see is the breath down the door and that's fine <laughs> i have i have one other question for you it's only sort of on topic and then i have to go take a dog to the bathroom because he's going to explode i think pretty soon oh. but was the annabelle like the film was bookended with annabelle but was annabelle supposed to be the demon I felt like that was a totally different story. Wasn't that a totally different story just to kind of show us that like demons exist or something? Like, I didn't think that demon was supposed to be the one doing the thing here. That was the one that was like bopping around the house at Ed and Lorraine's home, I think. <coughs> it was a weird bookend though, wasn't it? Because wasn't it actually just a totally different story? Yes. I think that was, well, again, to, to Juan's credit, um, I think that was to cement the notion that, cause wasn't Annabelle also, I think that was to explain to us viewers that are so used to the iconic trope of exorcism as demon possesses a kid or a girl or whatever, that that's not what was happening. Cause don't they say about Annabelle, it wasn't actually a possession. It was just using that as a pretense to do something else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what I thought too. I just wanted to check because I wasn't sure if I was missing the boat somewhere. Sorry. I wanted to say the second piece about Annabelle is it, it lays the groundwork for another spinoff film. Like Juan is thinking not just sequels, but he was thinking let's create a universe from the, from the get go. Which is cinema, or which in terms of the business, the Hollywood is just smart as fuck. Yeah, we can hang out. Yeah, we we'll still try and do that. Yeah, I have that in my calendar still. Yeah, and we can catch up then. Cool. Okay. Well, it's your pick then, but um, it might be kind of fun to do like Exorcist or Poltergeist or something or something totally different. But you don't, you don't I would want love to do, to do this, more of these. You don't want to do the sequel. Conjuring two. Yeah. Is that? So are there only two? I saw another one. Was that the sequel? Well, apparently there's a third coming out next year. Did Did you see the sequel? Yes, because I liked the film so much. I don't know. There's another one of these that I thought was actually really scary as well that I can't think of. I can picture the cover of it. So I could find that and we could we could do that. What is the name of that film? I'll have to dig that out. I'll let you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That'll be fun. Okay. Okay. Aren't there movies called Annabelle? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole, you're right. That's why it's a universe, not a series. I think the one I'm thinking of is an Annabelle one. Uh, The Haunting in Connecticut might be the, Hmm. but I could have swore. Annabelle Creation. That's the one I saw. Okay. But I could have swore there's a different cover. 
I thought I knew the cover, but it just doesn't look quite right to me. I'll, I'll have to turn that on and see. Okay. Well, maybe we could do that for next week, but I would love to stay on this theme if you're up for it. Maybe try I mean, our slasher movie is set. I feel like we got some really good. I don't know. We got some really good info out of doing a few of them in a row like that. And then we were done. I feel like the rape revenge films also, we got kind of a lot out of doing a chunk of them. So I'd love to do a chunk of these. They don't have to be right in order necessarily, but I'd love to. I still want to come back to rape revenge at some point, but that's fine. Um, cool. Yes, I agree with you. I'll watch Poltergeist basically any day of the, any day of the week. Um, That'd be fun. Uh, Maybe we should do that. It's one of my all time favorites, but yeah, I'm fine with sticking with this. This is the one I was thinking of. Did you watch this or did we watch this? I think this is it. I started to say this in the middle of the episode and totally just trailed off. So that's unfortunate. I think this is it. Um, The Devil Inside. A woman becomes involved in a series of unauthorized exorcisms during her mission to discover what happened to her mother. The name sounds so familiar, but that doesn't. So I don't know. Okay. I was, because I was... I have some vague recollection of a film, which this was 2012. So definitely when I was still vaguely recollecting films of an exorcism of an exorcism film that featured a woman as the exorcisee. See if it's any different. Exerciser. Sorry, I got lost there. So maybe we could make a spoof film that's called The Exerciser. And <laughs> have it be like a personal trainer and exorcist life coach. <laughs> so you could like, get, they could come in and not only get rid of your demon, but also like work on your fitness. <laughs> your opening puns would just be you'd have so, much, so much to roll with. <laughs> oh, that was super fun. I'm so glad we did that. I'm going to go eat. Yeah. It'd be fun to watch and then record too. We can even watch together if you want, like, you know, in like a lame high school zoom kind of way. (laughs) I would be totally open to doing that for like the pull for like poltergeist for a film that I, this, that I want to be engrossed in. I I, I don't want to have that other screen Mm -hmm. open, but like a film that I know, even the exorcist, even, I mean, as much as I love that, even just a, any film that I'm very familiar with, it wouldn't bother me. So we can totally do that at some point. I suppose it's true. I don't really look at you when we watch movies. I mean, I shouldn't be right. So no, you just feel my hatred of movie theater talkers just emanating much as you would a demonic possession. You know, it's not empirically grounded. It's you sensing my energy and my, just like this, just like this uh, demon in uh, The Conjuring. It's so hateful. <laughs> my my, uh, my energy <laughs> towards the people who can't sit and watch a film that uh, you can sense it. <laughs> I like that. I don't know if you can hear a cat rolling a golf ball around in the background. <laughs> That's what's happening. Uh, if it sounds yeah. like there's a demon possession. <laughs> This is no excuse, but uh, uh, Apple, um, you know, they have a default clock app with an alarm. 
And for absolutely no reason on this last update, they took the app that, so far as I know, has been the same for like 10 years and decided to improve it. Uh, And I've never once had a problem with it before. And I've now had it not set right twice. So that was why I was behind on time because I was supposed to get a I was supposed to get a notice ahead of time enough to do that long enough so that I was just gonna be sitting here ready and uh I never it never it never my alarm never sounded. So uh that's my story, which is not a very good one. <laughs> are those Newtons? They are yes, fig bars. Yummy. <laughs> So that's a deja vu. Didn't you ask me about that last time? Uh-huh. I think I did because they look so reminiscent of being a child. I used to like the apple ones, not the fig ones. They right. just look so good. I want a big pile of them. I can taste them right now. Just seeing you, them. An adult, if you want a Newton, you should have a Newton. Huh? <laughs> last time I saw you eat Newtons, I thought exactly that. Like, you're a grown-up, Laura. You could go get yourself some Newtons. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> but I didn't. That's kind of sad. Um, now I want a Newton again. I'm sorry. I just have to say, all I can think of, I mean, they did great. She's a wonderful actress. All I can think of for her, if she will ever be the friend and say anything who has written a thousand songs about her ex-boyfriend who broke up with her. (laughs) I wrote 63 songs this year. They're all about Joe, and I'm going to play every single one of them tonight. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't even recognize that. (laughs) Yes, that's her. Okay, cool. I learned something. Um, next because my other hitch or my other whatever uh something was that i'm sure i don't know anything do you know anything about religion in malaysia is it i don't but i also think that the messaging of this film is not as overt as it is i think you could make the film and think oh i'm just making an you know an exorcism film without necessarily catching that because a lot of those stereotypes are so prominent in our society that I think you might not see them. Sure. Sorry. Um, so again, from, uh, from Wikipedia, while recognizing Islam as the country's established religion, the constitution grants freedom of religion to non-Muslims, but he was born in Malaysia and apparently raised in Australia and Australia for sure has conservative Christian religion in this in at least some sort of overlaps with the u.s if for no other reason than that's the other source of the murdoch right-wing media infrastructure right we're the we're the only two places really on the planet that believes things that are promoted by fox news (laughs) in any sort of significant numbers at least we used to be i don't know how far that's spread now with the internet but in the heyday of fox in the early 20 teens it was us in australia and that's still true to a great extent we don't believe in climate change we don't believe in i don't know whatever else was going on with the fox news bit i just want to acknowledge that he's a he's a he's someone other than a white man working in hollywood and working in the horror genre that's not really all i wanted to at least acknowledge i think we we should it'd be interesting you know I haven't seen Saw in so long. I'd be, I'm just now trying to go back and think about his other films. I would love to do Insidious. If we wanted to talk about that, we could see if that was also in his 
that's also his film. And I want to look at something here because I think he also wrote Insidious. We're in the weeds here now, folks. No, that's okay. So Insidious is him pairing back up with Lee Winnell, who also he worked with on Saw. So, but Lee Winnell, how about this, Laura? Okay, so this is all the case. And like you said, he may not have realized this. They may, this may have been his background for him making it as it was background for me watching it. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, one, I think at some point we ought to do Insidious. The Conjuring 2 was written by the same folks, directed as well by Juan. Although James Wan gets a writing credit with the Hayes who wrote this first one, which could be interesting to see if him also being in the writing process, if there's any turn in the ideology. That could be interesting because if it's still super conservative, it's like, okay, well, he knew what he was doing, or at least that would be indicative of that. And if it's turned the other way, maybe he got the second script, realized he'd made like a hyper conservative film and was like, I'm going to steer it a different direction. Should we grade the film before I, I'm, this is all probably like, should be left to like, what are we going to do in future episodes? So I'll, I'll cut a lot of this. Sorry. I got kind of lost in the weeds there, but, but weeds, because I was, I'm, I'm interested in, in sorting out if this was something that he was doing knowingly, or if this was something that he was doing because he thought it was a great script and could make a good film. And it was sort of incidental or it was forgivable or, who knows, whatever, or it was a great paycheck and 